The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really great to be with everyone this morning, and a big welcome to anybody who's new here for the first time. And today will be the third talk I've given on wisdom and compassion working together and just how we understand the coming together of love and wisdom and how we can learn not to separate these two aspects of spiritual life. And, you know, it's it's like anything. We can be divisive arguing about anything. You know, is it all about love or is it all about understanding as if it were two different things or two separate paths? This is a little something from Sylvia Borstein, one of our Western lay teachers, elders, one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock, where I'll be teaching next week, kind of another one of our grandmother institutions, as well as IMS in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society. These are our two main organizations in our in Common Ground's lineage of Insight Meditation or early Buddhism here in the West. And this is... Uh, a short interview they had with Sylvia that was in Tricycle a long time ago, 20 years ago or so. And she says, uh, you know, she's asking the question or responding to the question, you know, what do we see when we sit upright in our practice and we're relaxed and we're open? What do we see? And she she writes here, what we most frequently see when the mind is focused and clear are the habits of the of mind that create unnecessary suffering, habits fueled by greed, hatred, and delusion. Over and over we struggle with our lives, resenting our experiences, blaming ourselves for not being other than who we are. We are unable to see past the immediate overwhelming drama of our personal story to find relief, indeed liberation, in the consoling realization of an astonishing lawful cosmos Paying attention to current experience stops the stories that create and recreate suffering. So this is our most potent intervention. It's amazing how much drama and suffering a simple moment of presence interrupts, diffuses, causes it to be set aside. Right? Just the choice, the valuing of being present, being open, seeing clearly, recognizing this as being known. And the example we often give is like a moment when we're caught in some hatred, let's say, some revenge fantasy or hating ourselves or whatever our particular way of getting caught up in aversion And in a moment of recognizing the aversion is like this now. It's being felt, it looks like this, it feels like this. This is aversion being known. So that moment of being aware with wisdom, with compassion of the aversion is liberating because we can't be aware of it as a natural phenomena and at the same, in the same moment, be caught up and identified with it and oppressed by it. So that's why mindful awareness has this liberating capacity. It's really our, 
primary dharma move. doesn't mean it's easy and doesn't mean there are different sort of ways to stabilize this present moment awareness, but we need to recognize it so we can learn to value it. If we don't value it, we won't cultivate it. If we don't really directly experience how valuable it is, it isn't enough for other people to tell us it's valuable. We actually have to see it in living color, how it's liberating, how it has both the flavors of wisdom and love infused in it. I sort of try to suggest that in the guided meditation, like to to see how in moments of full presence, it's really a kind of love, not some heavy should, like I should be present, I should be receptive. But it's a, it's a gift that we give ourselves, so to speak. And it's a gift that keeps on giving. It has, it's like a seed that has all kinds of positive consequences. Let me just read a little bit more from Sylvia's interview here. She writes, or she said, The practice of seeing clearly is what finally moves us toward kindness. Seeing again and again the infinite variety of traps we create for seducing the mind into struggle, seeing the endless rounds of meaningless suffering over lusts and aversion, aversions, which although seemingly urgent are essentially empty. We feel compassion for ourselves and then quite naturally we feel compassion for everyone else. We know as we have never known before that we are all stuck all of us, with bodies and minds and instincts and impulses, all in a tug of war with our basic heart nature that yearns to relax and to love. And I think we could say here, yearns to relax into presence. Then we surrender. We love, we laugh, we appreciate. And this can be you know, for your conversation in the small group, for those of you who stay later this morning, or just on your own with your Dharma friends, within your own mind, reflecting on this simple truth. You know what? It isn't easy being a human being. As Sylvia says, you know, with all of our, you know, habits and our desires for this and that and our conditioned reactivity, these conditioned patterns that get triggered over and over again. And here, the sensitive heart and body, in a way, is the recipient of all that habit energy that constantly gets triggered. And just imagine, you know, like as a reflection, what would it be like for us to live today, or even live in this moment, you know, with this sense, like, as we sense our own life here, as we sense everybody else here with us and our friends and family around us and all our neighbors and all the other beings, if we kept in mind, if the way we were perceiving understood that it isn't easy being a living being, it isn't, being, it isn't easy being pushed around by conditioned habits, it isn't easy. And I care about that. And I care enough to show up. I care enough to listen. Right? And to realize that our two instincts to control things, to make it feel safe, 
being a sensitive human being. So the control move or the opposite move, which is to give up, to feel the victim, to identify with victimization, that both of them are just more and more and more causes for stress and heaviness, not even just for ourselves, but for all of us. We contribute to each other's suffering by acting out, you know, reacting with some attempt to control and fix and dominate experience so it's easier being a human being or some move to give up, to complain, to get lost in some oh poor me or to blame. Be Either way, it's a heavy trip. Those are all heavy trips and that heaviness weighs on our heart all the time. For me, this is a related little passage, this one from Ajahn Sumedho, one of our other elders. He is a monastic, has been a Buddhist monk for many decades, now well into his 80s, um, originally from the United States, but for many decades was the abbot of a big monastery in England, Amaravati, after having practiced with his teacher, Ajahn Chah, in Thailand for uh, many years. And this is an article titled Letting Go by Ajahn Sumedho. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and to achieve this and to go into that, and to understand this, and to read the suttas, and study the Abhidhamma, and learn Pali, and Sanskrit, and all the other traditions. He goes on, and he names all the other later Buddhist traditions. And goes on, he writes, to write books and become the world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world expert on Buddhism, and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, we just let go. Let go let go, right? So it's not about, remember, because we might interpret letting go as a kind of complacency or passivity, but we want to reimagine letting go as a very enlivened, like coming out of interest, the interest to connect or the interest to see clearly, because we can't really connect unless we're letting go or allowing or letting be, you know, the words, how we language it, you have to be creative so that you're not triggering in your own mind misunderstanding. But there is a very assertive, enlivened, bright response that has to do with receptivity or letting go or letting be or trusting or softening. And he goes on, he writes, I did nothing but this for two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya. So if you don't know, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, there's some speculation that the next Buddha, right, is going to be Maitreya, named Maitreya, which is the Buddha of love, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest 
just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world, just be an earthworm who only knows two words, let go, let go, let go. And he continues a little later writing, the important thing in meditation practice is to be constant and resolute in the practice, determined to be awakened. This is not to be conceited or foolish, but resolute. Right? And resolute just arises out of our own confidence that becoming, trying to dominate the moment or giving up, wanting to be done with the moment, these don't help. We can have that resolute confidence. That doesn't help. <laughs> and so this letting go is really an enlivened practice that comes out of that. So again, he writes, this is not to be conceited or foolish, but resolute, even when the going is rough. Remind yourself of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, being awake to the way it is and responding from that intimacy. He writes, and stay with it, letting go of despair, letting go of anguish, letting go of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. So we let go of all that, even wise teachings. Like it either landed or it didn't land. But at this point, trying to be like becoming the one who's not going to forget those teachings on letting go. What are we doing right now? We're creating suffering for ourselves, right? All of a sudden, there's fear in the heart. Fear of letting go of teaching that sounded really useful. That could be really helpful for me. Doesn't mean that remembering the teachings isn't a useful thing. It just means that being afraid of forgetting, we can directly recognize as being stressful, heavy. Being the one who's afraid of losing important teachings is heavy. So maybe I'll let go of that. Maybe I don't need to hold that weight. And that brings us, you know, because we've been looking these last three weeks on um, wisdom and compassion working together. And so it, it just naturally brings up the question, well, what does that look like when in my own life, in my own heart, body, mind, what does it feel like, look like when wisdom and love are working together? And there's different ways, you know, that we'll recognize the sort of basic movement of our practice of wisdom and compassion working together, supporting each other, like a, an engine, a feedback mechanism of spiritual awakening. And one of the flavors that we can use to help get a sense, like a barometer, whether our practice is to be trusted, you know, whether we understand it and are on the right path, is this texture or flavor of humility. And I don't know if you know this, but the word humility, related to the word being humble, is uh, related to the root of the word humus, that uh, decomposition that happens, you know, the leaves and plant material breaks down. That humus is the earth, the kind of rich soil that we see, the topsoil, which is made up of life, 
eating life, right? It's kind of a provocative thing, this, yeah, what all of our food and well-being survival is built on is life eating life, this rich humus. And I, I don't know if you were all there, but two weeks ago I read from a passage where Sariputta, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, gives his lion's roar after being falsely accused by a younger, less experienced monk of having hit him, hit the younger monk, this very respected, wise elder, you know, having been accused, is told to report to the Buddha and explain himself. And Sariputta gives this lion's roar, like, my heart, my understanding is like the earth. People throw all kinds of things on the earth. I'm just paraphrasing his lion's roar, this short little talk with that person who had accused him and all of his brother monks and probably some lay people and Buddhist nuns, you know, all gathered because they knew, they respected Sariputta. They're pretty, they were pretty sure he didn't act out in this unskillful way. So they wanted to see how does a wise person, someone well-established in wisdom and compassion, respond when being falsely accused? And what he describes for the crowd was, for those people who whose heart are not like the earth, willing to receive whatever comes their way, whether someone urinates on the earth or plants daisies on the earth, the earth has this way of being unshakable and yielding and receptive and seemingly not harmed. You know, as a metaphor, I know we could argue that there are ways to throw the world off balance. Certainly it seems that way now with the way it's been treated. But the earth has this capacity to keep regenerating, right? As does all of nature. And so the Sariputta uses this metaphor and it has this sense of humility. And he even ends this, you know, he doesn't blame or lash out at the young monk who falsely accused him. He actually, after the monk apologizes, he apologizes for anything he might have done to cause harm. And uh, this is really useful for us about understanding how wisdom and compassion can work together. One way I like to think about this is thinking about how our mind gets caught in drama. And we can use the stories, the myths or... Um, yeah, just the teaching stories from early Buddhism. Because there's this idea of the warring God realm. Beings that have really privileged existence, really nice conditions. They got a lot of pleasure in their lives, a lot of comforts. Everything one could want except one thing. They're, they're able to perceive other beings who have even better circumstances and this really bothers them. So even though they've got a really nice set of conditions for their life, really beautiful bodies, wise, you know, all this sort of nice circumstances, and it's depicted as like looking further up the mountain and seeing even better real estate. <laughs> they've got better views. They have more refined, beautiful bodies. They have better food, you know. <laughs> 
they're better organized and can't deal with the envy. So what did they spend their entire nice life doing? Struggling to get the to the nicer place. No enjoyment, no relaxation and appreciation of their really beautiful circumstance. And and for me, this is an example, like for those of us who have nice conditions, privileged existences, right? We can spend a lot of time wanting even nicer conditions. But another trap equally seductive is, and, and it isn't like one or the other. We generally swing back and forth between these, whether we, in some objective sense, have a really difficult life or some objective sense we have a really privileged life. We tr- tend to obsess, uh, wrongly relate to our privilege privileges, and also wrongly relate to our challenges and difficulties with some version of oh, poor me and victimization and hating and blaming. And it both are totally understandable, you know, to have a really nice house, but to be obsessing about having an even nicer house, it's totally understandable. To have difficult conditions in our life, to be ill, to be oppressed, to be mistreated, and to be obsessed about how unfair that is, it's totally understandable that our minds do this. That's what our minds do. But the pragmatic question is, is this helping? Is a, me obsessing about this, the insults that come my way or the difficulties that come my way, is it helpful for me to obsess in any of those or oh poor me kind of dramas? And basically construct ideas of me being the victim and then getting identified with those stories of being the victim and patching them up and keeping that story going. Is that helpful? When I catch myself doing that, what is getting set in motion in my heart? What is getting set in motion in my relationships with other beings around me? Same thing when I have a lot of privilege, a lot of power, and I get identified with it. I have a lot of power, therefore I should have more power. Or I have a lot of power, therefore I should protect this power so as never to lose the power and privilege privileges that I have. Right? So if that's my response to having good circumstances, having power, having significance, having privilege, is to want more of it or want it never to change, never to go away, how does that work for me? What does that set in motion? Is it helpful to be relating to power and privilege in that way? See, it's very pragmatic. It's We really want to avoid judging ourselves, judging others when they're involved in an oh, poor me drama or they're involved in a, you know, don't take away my power drama. You know, this is my power, I deserve more. And we see this getting acted out in individuals' hearts and minds, and we see this getting acted out more widely in our culture and in our world, right? This is the age-old drama. I sometimes think, some of you know, the Buddha described the eight worldly winds, just as his 
basic description of the world we live in. Our hearts always being buffeted by gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And I, I just imagine that we should add a, uh, one more pair, right? The fifth pair, which is this perception of having power and privilege and the perception of not having power and privilege, right? Because we go back and forth between pain and pleasure, praise and blame, success and failure, and the perception of being powerful, having privilege, having status, having beauty, having emotional intelligence, whatever that might look like in a moment or for a few moments in our life. And then soon later, just the opposite, feeling relatively not privileged, not empowered, not having significance, not being recognized, not belonging, not being taken care of, not being treated the way we want to be treated, and then back and forth. And that does not to say that it's the same for each of us. Clearly, it's not the same for each of us. Some people have more difficult, seemingly at least, more difficult circumstances. Other people have more pleasant circumstances. And none of it is fair in, in that kind of objective sense. But it is the way that it is. And the important question is, what do we do with that reality? How do we relate to this? And I think this humility that I'm talking about, humility as an expression of wisdom and love working together, it really helps us find the middle way between the dramas that tend to get set in motion when we have power that are stressful and the kind of dramas that get set in motion when we imagine not having power, not having privilege, not having significance. And so for this week and even in the small group discussions, you know, we can just bring to mind situations where we felt privileged, we felt empowered, we felt like we have a nice situation, we feel safe, and how the mind sometimes relates to it in ways that undermine the good feeling, and other times relating to those moments of feeling empowered that uh, feel really clean and unencumbered, and not leaving heavy traces. Same thing with times of difficulty, of being mistreated, taken advantage of, not having the support we feel we should have in our lives, and and how we've related to, to that either in skillful ways or unskillful ways. What's the skillful way what have we learned is the skillful way to relate to difficult circumstance. And what are the unskillful ways to be relating to difficult circumstance? And again, not as a way to hate ourselves or to hate and judge others, but just this pragmatic way of finding our way in life, avoiding the unnecessary suffering. Because this humility keeps us interested so we can really observe these two ways we get spellbound. We get spellbound by privilege and power and fortunate circumstance, and we get spellbound by difficult circumstance all the time. 
There's an interesting story, uh, maybe in the Zen tradition, been told for probably centuries about a person. And uh, I think the way it goes is uh, one day a bunch of, uh, oh, a beautiful stallion just showed up at his farm or their farm. And he, they were able to capture the horse and and they all the neighbors just came by and said, you are so lucky you have this wonderful animal you know you can use for breeding it would be a good productive horse on the farm and all of that and but the farmer was wise and all he said in response was well who knows it's like a a wisdom mantra you could use this yourself just after every thought you have after every time you're in discussion with someone you just add on well who knows who knows or maybe not so so anyway things go on and a few days later, the one of the farmer's children is trying to train the horse to have a person on its back and gets thrown and breaks their leg. And all the neighbors come by and say, oh, terrible, terrible news. And the farmer just says, well, who knows? Who knows? And another week later, the uh, army marches through town, taking all the young people away to serve in the army. And uh, the young a teenager isn't allowed to go because they have a broken leg. And all the neighbors come by, you are so lucky that your son wasn't taken away to be in the army. And the farmer goes, who knows? And it just keeps going on like this. The horse leaves, breaks out of the pen, and they go, oh, you've lost your beautiful stallion. And the farmer says, who knows? And then a few days later, the stallion comes back with a bunch of other wild horses that the farmer is able to capture same thing. Who knows, right? And it's it doesn't mean that we don't notice the fortunate circumstances and the unfortunate circumstances when they come and go. No, we become more and more and more sensitive as we practice more. We feel things more deeply. We sense the suffering in our own lives and around us in the world. But there's just this humble attitude. Well, who knows? Who knows? And we're not trying to find safety in changing conditions that can never provide safety. And that's the great betrayal. You know, like even if we have a privileged existence, it doesn't actually provide the safety we imagine. Still, it's favorable to have nice conditions because when we feel safe, we can be more interested. And when we're more interested, we can learn more deeply about the nature of our lives and the causes for suffering and release. So there's no doubt that having favorable conditions, comfortable conditions are nice, but they don't lead to liberation. There are a lot of people with fortunate circumstances that demonstrate infinite ways to suffer and to be unhappy. We read about them a lot in the news, right? This sort of celebrity culture where, you know, we just see the torment of people who have relatively privileged existence, existences. So this humility is the not clinging to any stories of victimization and any of our stories of privilege. Just having this who knows, or just knowing that things will change. It's like this now, 
We'll see how it unfolds. We'll see what comes next. And we see through the kind of surface level of, of the immediacy of it's like this now, it's a nice day out or it's a terrible day out or my body really hurts or my body feels good or my relationship with my partner's going well or my relationship with my partner's really pins and needles or whatever we might say. And, we're, and it's the lightness, the humility really allows for this lightness because we're not expecting, wrongly expecting that these changing circumstances are going to take care of us. We don't see them as a refuge. We see them for what they are, changing, coming and going, impersonal. One of the things about power and privilege is it's intoxicating. We think we deserve the power and privilege we have. And what's interesting is that even people with amazing amounts of power and privilege can feel like victims. We see this all the time in politics and in business. I, you know, I don't know Elon Musk very well. <laughs> Just read some articles once in a while. But it's seeming to me ironic, you know, the kind of complaints that can come from people with tremendous power and privilege, you know, not being able to do what they want, not being able to get what they want, not being able to have the conditions they want in their lives. So this dance between, you know, power and victimization, it's the most ancient dance. And it's really the dance of suffering it's suffering now in our own hearts and it sets emotion suffering all around us. So let me just end with a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh from The Sun is Our Art of Power. Oh, I'm sorry. It's The Art of Power by Thich Nhat Hanh, this article, The Art of Power. One of the core practices of mindfulness is to take care of our painful emotions we can use the energy of mindfulness to recognize the pain inside and hold it tenderly, like a mother holding her baby. The energy of mindfulness does, does the work of recognizing, embracing, and bringing relief. You may not know what is causing your pain, your despair, your fear, but if you know how to hold that pain with the energy of mindfulness, you immediately get relief. Because the energy of mindfulness begins to penetrate the energy of pain, of sorrow. Imagine a flower in the morning. The flower is not yet open. The sun, sunshine embraces the flower and the energy of the sunlight begins to penetrate the flower. An hour later, the flower has to open itself to the sun. The sun is our mindfulness embracing the flower of our feelings. And in a way, these stories of victimization and power and that empowerment is uh, it's just a way to avoid that more powerful exposure of being open, open to the sunshine of awareness. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.